Well, good morning. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, did anybody go to Starry Night last night? Some of you did. Anybody go to the football game? Yes. <laughs> that was a hard one. That was a hard one. It's good. A lot of late nights, but thank you for joining us and for coming to gather with us this morning. Uh, we are in a sermon series on the book of Acts. And so if you're new to the Bible, that's in the New Testament, so towards the end of the Bible. And there's these four Gospels called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then right after that is Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describe in detail the, the ministry, the message, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Then the book of Acts tells you, well, what happened afterwards? Because Jesus isn't here. Where did he go? But what does he do now? Is he still at work? That's what the book of Acts tells us about. And we're throughout this semester going through this New Testament book of Acts, which records how the first Christians continued the ministry and mission of Jesus after he rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven. So this morning, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And in this passage, Luke Luke is the writer of Acts. He paints a picture of the first Christians' daily life together. So you know, yesterday, whether you went to a football game, whether you went to Starry Night, there were huge gatherings of people. But the church has also always been a gathering of people for a great purpose. And Luke gives us a portrait of what a church community should look like. And he uh, gives this portrait, and as he does it, reveals to us how very different this kind of community is meant to be. It, it's a new kind of community, unlike any other community in the world. It's busy, but not rushed. It's diverse, but unified. It's self-giving, but yet exceedingly glad to give up themselves. It's authentic, but safe. It's closed. You have to believe certain things. It's exclusive, but also open to everybody, inclusive. In essence, this portrait of the early church shows us patterns that we are actually meant to still follow ourselves as believers today. And so if you've ever wondered, what is the church supposed to look like? This is a good place to start. Let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, right at the end of the chapter of Acts chapter 2. Here's what it says. Talking about the people who just joined the church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a portrait of the church, right? 
I want to draw your attention again to the final verse where it says that the first Christian church, these are all people who had just become a part of the very first church. Jesus has risen from the grave. He's ascended into heaven. He taught his disciples what they must next do, his apostles. Now they are preaching and sharing with others who Jesus is and what he's done. And many who believed have entered and joined this new community, this new kind of community. And in verse 47, did you see it says, They were praising God and having favor with all the people. This same phrase is used a little later in Acts chapter 5, verse 13, uh, where it says, having favor with all the people. Just there, they translate it, all the people uh, held the Christians and the church in high esteem, or they they looked upon them with great favor. Uh, One African commentator I was reading as he was describing the church, he says, the reference to believers enjoying the favor of all the people here in Acts 2.47 makes it clear that they were not isolated. What we have here is a new community of believers where all the believers were together, and yet they remained within their wider society. How could they have favor with all the people? How could people look favorably upon this new community if they weren't able to see it? Christianity wasn't this thing that drove people out of society, but actually rooted them in their society, but as a new kind of community within society. And so in the early days of the church, uh, Christianity and Christians, at least at first, it says, were held in high regard by those around them. The church and Christianity was viewed in a positive light. Why was that? Well, it was because the church wasn't just about the people, were not just about themselves. This new community of people were united together in this new uh, type of community, and yet they remained very much for the people around them. That's a great portrait. But today, in the United States at least, is that the status that the church holds in many people's eyes? If you ask Maybe you've, maybe you've done this. If you've ever gone and asked your non-church-going friends, uh, hey, what do you think of church? And what do they say? Well, I ask people that sometimes, and uh, I often hear negative perceptions of the church and of Christians. Uh, the Barna Group, they do research, and they, they do research on the intersection of Christianity and culture, and they said that when they went around and actually did a whole research survey on asking non-church-going people what is the church known for, they kept hearing a lot of negative stuff too. And they asked them, well, why do you have an unfavorable reaction to the church? And they said there were a lot of different answers. Obviously, people, not everyone viewed the church badly. Some felt uh, it was really negative. Some felt it was sort of negative. Some felt it was, it's okay. But they said one crucial insight kept popping up. It is clear that Christians are primarily perceived for what they stand against. We have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. They said if if there was one takeaway from all of our research, it was that Christians are known for what they stand against rather than who they stand for. The researchers go on to note that the image many people have who are outside of Christianity, is that the church is a group of people who are old-fashioned, too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, boring, not accepting of other faiths, and confusing. Of course, not all the people's perceptions were negative. Many people today uh, would be better described as not hating the church, but just conflicted. Maybe you're one of them. 
I was one of them when I was in college myself. I remember going to church and there were a number of people who would smile and ask me, hey, how's school going? How's soccer going? And it seemed like, well, those things were going pretty well, but inside I was really struggling with a whole lot of other stuff that no one asked me about. So I had this perception of the church in a way that, well, people wanted me to do well, but the things that I was wrestling with internally, no one talked about. And eventually, I really struggled with the church, and I wondered whether I should keep going. I actually stopped going for a while. And people who are conflicted about the church, they maybe maintain significant doubts about the church. They have some negative images. They have some concerns about the church and about Christianity, while also still experiencing some level of positive association, right? I don't know about the church. I don't know about God. I don't know about that group of people. Yet I also think I've met some friendly Christians. I've seen some churches doing good in the neighborhood. Many people believe that Christianity has good values and principles and maybe even believe that Christians are friendly but remain conflicted about going to church or being a part of the church itself. Many people feel split down the middle as to whether Christianity is a faith really worth respecting a faith that shows love for others, a faith that offers hope for a good future, a faith full of people they actually want to trust. And of course, then there are others who hold Christianity in a wildly negative light and would say that Christianity and the church are oppressive and offensive. So many wonder, is Christianity genuine and real? Is it something that makes sense at all? Is it relevant to life? Well, others would say, I already have decided it's a bigoted, chauvinistic, intolerant, and exclusive religion. And they wonder whether Christianity is racially segregated or whether it's good for women or not, for example. Have you had any conversations like that? But from the start, that is not the portrait of the church that Acts 2 has given us. And in every single century since this began... That is not the essence of the true church. Christianity has always, always, this isn't, I'm not just saying this, this is historical, always been the most culturally and ethnically diverse belief system in the world. Researcher on Christianity Rebecca McLaughlin notes that from the beginning, the church has been the most culturally, ethnically diverse belief system in the world. Christianity is fiercely multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural, and from the start has always been favorable for women and in fact has been a majority female religion at many points throughout its history. The group of people described in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, that little section we just read, if we take it in context of all of Acts chapter 2, we go back to Acts chapter 2 verse 5, before Peter preaches the sermon that draws all these people into this new kind of community, it says they are men and women from every nation under heaven. This group of people was from everywhere. We see that when these men and women heard about Jesus, they converted from Judaism or whatever other religion they might have been uh, to Christianity. And then they were immediately recognized by others in the, in the surrounding community, not by what they stood against, but by what they were for. Christians uh, immediately elevated women, welcomed people from every nation and culture, and became the foundation for establishing education for all people, as well as the source of care for widows, orphans, the poor, and immigrants in whatever society Christians lived in. That has always been true in every century since the church began. 
But this isn't to say that the church is without flaws or many, many failings. Because, but, but here's what it is, right? Our flaws and our failings are so glaringly obvious because we actually have a long history of knowing that the church is supposed to be this new, different kind of community that doesn't look like the rest of the world. When the church loses its mission, when it loses its portrait of what we are meant to be, we stop representing the character and the love of God. We get a lot of bad press. And you know what I want to say? We should. We should absolutely get bad press for not living out the vision that is here. We need the correction, actually, of those who stand outside Christianity those outside the church who can tell those of us inside the church that we aren't living the incredible portrait that they actually know is meant to be true of us. That we are actually intended to become this kind of community that represents the very love and care of God to others around us. If we go back a few verses in our passage, just go back to to chapter 2, verse 40 and 41. It tells us that after the first sermon was ever preached, this is the first sermon Peter gave it, it says in, in chapter 2, verse 40 and 41, 3,000 people believed in Jesus and became Christians. The second sermon, if you were to move forward, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says that 5,000 plus people joined the church after the second sermon. I feel a lot of pressure right now. Um, this was a unique time in church history, so it's not true that that's always going to happen every time a sermon is preached, obviously. But it says, and then if we go back to our passage, look at verse 47 once again. It says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Every day. This community has had such a, such a message and such a compelling new way of relating to one another that people wanted to join every day. Every day. And did you know that within the first three centuries since the church started, which is started in the first century, so within the first 300 years A.D., the early church grew so explosively that it actually displaced the Greco-Roman Empire, their culture, and their way of thinking. This was the most powerful empire known to all of humanity ever up until that point in history. How? How did Christians do How did that happen? Was it because the church overthrew the government? Was it because they rallied against the culture? Is it because they got rich and bought everybody out? No. Actually, this was one of the strangest and least powerful groups of people in all of society at the time. What was the difference? It was because what they lived and what they believed was so attractively different than the surrounding culture that in a sociologically short time, if you ever read on how did early Christianity begin, sociologists, plenty of whom are not Christians, are looking and wonder how the heck did this happen? In 300 years is an extremely short time, especially back then, people aren't sharing things through the internet, so this has to just spread person by person. 300 years is a pretty short time for an entire empire to change. And we'll see that within the book of Acts, the church is imperfect. We'll see that they experience internal conflicts and external persecutions. But even then, the church remained attractively different. So what was attractively different about this new kind of human community? And how can we become attractively different as the church community today? What was different about them? And how do we live those differences today, too, if it's supposed to be true of us as well? 
four things I think this passage shows us they, that are so different. They were busy, but not rushed. They were powerful, but not arrogant. They were diverse, but they were very unified. And they were self-giving, but they were exceedingly glad to give up many of their own things for others. So first, what's attractively different about this new kind of human community? They were busy but not rushed. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the first verse in our section. It says this. This is one of the most important words in the passage right at the beginning. It says, and they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. The first thing new Christians do once they receive forgiveness and acceptance through the gospel of Christ is they devote themselves to an entirely new life focus. They devote themselves, it says, to four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and the prayers. What do we say about a married couple? We might say if they're really strong in their marriage, they're devoted to one another. What do we mean? We mean that they really stick to one another. They're not running off and having affairs. They've attached their lives to one another. They're faithful to one another. That they persist with one another through the ups and downs of sicknesses, of hurting each other, of struggles, of financial strain. They persist with one another. They spend significant time, whether in joy or in sorrow, they are listening, they are sharing their thoughts and their feelings. I recently got engaged a, couple, a little while ago, and what I'm saying is, uh, thank you, thank you, appreciate that. And what is engagement? It's not just saying, I like this person. Let's spend a little time together. I'll give you, you know, Tuesdays and Thursday nights. No, it, it's a devotion. It's saying, I want to spend the, the rest of our lives committed together to one another. These new Christians in the early church were devoted to biblical teaching, to being together, to breaking bread, both in hospitality and communion, and diligent praying. This is what they committed themselves to. As the local church in the city of Jerusalem, they together persisted day after day after day doing those four things every day. Not just sometimes, not just once a week on a Sunday morning. This was the pattern of their life. They were dedicated and devoted to these practices. Now, if you are dedicated and devoted to something, you're going to spend a lot of time on it. You're probably going to invest a lot of money in it. You know that you're devoted to something because it shows up repeatedly on your calendar. It shows up repeatedly on your receipts. You are busily engaged with it. And this is the thing. They were busy. This is what they did. They joined together in this new kind of community, and they were very busily engaged with these things. What are you busily, what are you busily engaged in? According to your calendar, if we were to go through your credit card transactions... If we say, what do you spend focused attention on in your life? What are you devoted to? What do you keep doing over and over? Where do you keep returning time and time again? What group of people or regular rhythms do you keep attaching yourself to? Whatever you spend your time, your money, your focus, your attention on, that is what you are actually devoted to. In his brilliant book, The Attention Merchants, Columbia Law Professor Tim Wu says, how we spend the brutally limited resource of our attention will determine our lives to a degree most of us would prefer not to think about. As William James observed, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. We are at risk, without quite fully realizing it, of living lives that are less 
uh, our own than we imagine. The premise of his book is, has a lot to do with just mainly with smartphones and how our culture and our society is built around grabbing attention. He's saying that what we live in is actually an attention economy. We may think the economy is about money. True. But what he says is no one makes money unless they've grabbed your attention. What people do, why do they... Nobody sells a car by, these days by putting a picture of a car on your TV screen and saying, it's reliable and it's good. You should buy it. No, they present to you a really great life that if, you're, if you buy a Lexus... You're going to be among a great group of people. You're going to have a great kind of experience. You're going to be looked upon with respect by others, right? If we live in this distracted age, as people keep telling us, then all that that means is distraction means we're maybe unable to pay attention to what we're supposed to or to pay attention to what's most important. But the truth is then, whether we're distracted or not, aren't we always paying attention to something all the time? always paying attention to something. Tim Wu says, if we think of attention as a resource or even a kind of currency, we must allow that it's always necessarily being spent. There is no saving it for later. The question is always, every moment, what shall I pay attention to? The early Christians were answering that question by devoting themselves to biblical teaching, to being together, to breaking bread, and to diligently praying. And this is what they were busily engaged with. And yet, if you think about the types of things they were engaged with, you can't possibly do those things and be rushed. You can't be in a hurry all the time. You can't be moving on to the next thing because it takes uh, a lot of, of focus to learn to understand the Bible. It takes a lot of persistence to truly learn to pray and to pray for others when, when we have so many of our own concerns, doesn't it? It's hard to spend quality time together if we're always rushing out the door to the next thing. So it turns out that Christians in the Christian church are meant to be a place of deep engagement, of real authenticity, of reasoned learning, of persistent care, being together in everything and praying for those things as well. This is what the Christians stood for. This is what they devoted themselves to, this new way. And in essence, it sums up the great commandment that Jesus taught us, right? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater thing than these. What you're devoted to is what you love. Whatever you spend your focus, time, and attention on, your mind, that's what you love. And these people were about devoting themselves to God revealed through Scripture, devoting themselves to their relationship with God in prayer. So they loved God in everything. But then they also loved Him outside of those spiritual practices by giving away their money, by being together in a new kind of community. And so they broke bread together. They had fellowship. So they loved one another. They loved God and they loved one another. That's the essence of what we're seeing here. This new kind of community was built on a new devotion, a new foundation, a new focus, a new kind of busyness. And it was attractively different because of what their devotion helped them become. When devoted, what they devoted themselves to, loving God and loving one another, was so attractive because it turned them into a people who were powerful but not arrogant. They were diverse but Unified, they were self-giving, but exceedingly glad to be so generous. So the next things are built on the first thing. The second thing that we see here in verse 43 is that they're powerful but not arrogant. It says, 
awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. So, so not only did the Christians devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, they also witnessed the apostles' miracles. That's what the word wonders means. It's often used in the Bible to refer to miracles. The earliest instances of that are back in the Old Testament book called Exodus. And there, the miracles were always, uh, God was helping a group of people oppressed by slavery. And he used his power to work in the world to free them from that oppression. But every miracle he did came with an explanation. There was always a teaching in a way attached to it. And the same is true of Jesus. When you look at Jesus in the New Testament, every time he does a miracle, There's a teaching attached to it, which means miracles aren't just random displays of power. They are events to be interpreted. The testimony of Scripture is that there are witnesses throughout every era on earth who saw and can attest to the supernatural work of God. And this was no different in the early church. The apostles, as God's chosen messengers, sent to witness to Jesus being God's ultimate miracle because he rose from the grave. They continued Jesus' ministry of healing and overcoming problems in the natural creation by setting things right. That's the other thing that a miracle does. What does a miracle do? It undoes something wrong or it sets something right, right? It takes someone who can't see and helps them see, for example. The apostles, it says, are doing miracles. So the early Christians are a part of this That's powerful. They're part of this powerful new community in which God is demonstrating his ability through them, at least through the apostles. And the others, it says, all came upon them. They found it wonderful, amazing, astonishing. It also says that a miracle is a sign. It says they were doing wonders and signs. What is a sign? It it points to something beyond itself, Right? So when you see the sign that says Indianapolis is 45 miles away on I-65 South, you do not stop at the sign and celebrate being in Indianapolis because it's telling you, go further. The sign points you to the reality. And, and what, might this, what might some powerful supernatural event, a miracle, point to? It points to the fact that there is power outside the normal jurisdiction of things on earth that there's another realm, another reality that is far greater, vaster, and wider than the one that we are a part of. This is really hard for most people in our society, and this wouldn't be so strange if we believed that God was the God of nature, because then if He made all of nature, He already stands above nature, and so Him superseding nature wouldn't be weird. But we have trouble with that, don't we? I know I have It can be difficult to understand miracles or how they might work. But if God is God, miracles actually make perfect sense. And so what matters is whether God is God. What these early Christians, people in their society had no trouble believing in God. Everybody believed in gods. If not one, many gods. And no one, I'm not going to stand here and try to prove God to you. Even though the miracles are part of his proofs, part of his evidence, that he can do things way beyond what you and I can. He can enter the world in a way that is very different than what you and I are used to. And so whenever you see a miracle in the Bible, or maybe if you've ever, by God's grace, seen a miracle in real life, you always have to go back to the interpretation of what it means. 
And it's always meant to point you to the reality that God actually so loves the world that he invades it and does spectacular things at times. And these people believe in the little miracles that the apostles are doing because they literally just saw the empty tomb where Jesus was laid after he was killed. It wasn't hard for them in that sense because they just saw someone rise from a grave. C.S. Lewis has a book called Miracles, and in that book he describes how many miracles are either miracles of reversal or miracles of glorification. And the miracle, the great reversal that occurs in the book of Acts, every single speech or sermon that occurs in the book of Acts, which is largely speeches and sermons, is about the resurrection of Jesus. What they say is this new kind of community could not exist if he didn't rise from a grave. So any great thing you might see happening anywhere is, in, is a little resemblance of the big and great powerful reversal Jesus did when he rose from the grave. The miracles in the Bible anticipate the final miracle, that Jesus is the beginning of a new kind of creation. And in the new kind of creation, death can't beat you. You will not be destroyed. Sickness cannot overcome you. Whatever ailments you have is not the final end of the story. He's telling you this is what you get to be a part of. And so we pray for miracles. But even if they don't happen, we look to the greater miracle, which is why they have awe and wonder in the first place. We look to the greater miracle that God himself came into earth and undid the bad processes that are already here. And he invites us to join him in a new creation, a kind of creation where death doesn't win. There is nothing final like that that stands against us. The greater point of our passage today isn't whether you and I have actually personally witnessed a miracle. miracle. Did you see that there's no details really given? It just says wonders and signs were being done. It doesn't tell you which ones. We'll see some in Acts chapter 3 next week. But did you notice the details aren't described because the main point is that reversal is occurring among them. And the big picture of what we're seeing is, in a way, the great miracle here isn't just that a few powerful things were happening. It's that this group of diverse people who were so different from so many different backgrounds were actually coming together in a way that no human society had seen before. Do you know that that means, in part, because of Jesus' resurrection, a new creation is coming, but also he created a new community. And this, the church itself, when it fulfills this portrait, is a miracle. It is a miracle. Here's the thing. The word awe can also mean fear. The fear of God, which is a common phrase throughout the Bible. And it really just means reverence. Reverent fear, this looking to God with awe, with wonder, with respect, that He is the foundation of your life now. And so that's what they're looking to. They're seeing God as the foundation of their lives. And this stands in contrast to maybe you and I who struggle a lot probably with with FOMO, with the fear of missing out. They have the fear of God now. They are not afraid of missing out in the world because they will not miss out for all eternity. The fear of God starts to trump their fear of missing out. And let's be more specific, right? The fear of missing out on something isn't just the fear of missing out on anything, right? Who cares to miss out on traffic or tofu? I don't know. I don't like tofu. So I have no fear of missing out on tofu. We're talking about people, like when we have the fear of missing out on something, we're talking particularly about missing out on the opportunities in our lives that, that help us believe we won't have a substandard life. 
I've been talking to a lot of juniors and seniors recently who've been sharing a kind of theme throughout their looking for internships or jobs. And many have expressed to me this ongoing fear of, if I don't do this for my resume, if I don't get this right, if I fail in this interview, if I do, I'm going to have a substandard life. Well, what's happening here? This group of people is so diverse that they're educated and uneducated. They're rich and they're poor. They're from every country. They're men and women, and they're all together. And it says all came upon all of them because they're not afraid anymore of what their life could become. Because they have come to see that if God actually reverses death, then you, if you are a part of that, you do not have a substandard life ever anymore even if your life here isn't everything you hoped it would be. God brings this people together. We see that he gives us a better kind of life. And this is, again, another foundation, a pillar of the church and why we have hope. And this hope leads them to being able to become this wildly diverse community who's actually also unified. And that was the third thing. Their hope allows them to be unified. The third thing that makes the, the church uh, attractively different is they were powerful, but they didn't become arrogant, right? They, they, they had this powerful event happen among them. They saw signs and wonders, and yet they didn't go around boasting about how awesome their community was. They went around boasting about how great God was. This was the unity that brought their diversity together. It wasn't a mere appreciation for one another. In verse 44 and 45, it says, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to anybody who had need. Three times there's the word all. They all believed in Jesus. They all had things in common then. They, their life together became a common life. And all gave to one another as anybody had need. So they're united in following Jesus and united in sharing in every aspect of life together. And we already established that they're a very diverse group of people. This is what it said in verse 42 when it said they were devoted to the fellowship. What we're seeing in verse 44 and 45 is a depiction of the fellowship. The word that actually is translated, they had everything in common, is actually the same word as fellowship. It's the same word. So they had all things in common. That's the root of fellowship. So if you think, you know, Growing up in a church, you might think fellowship is that time of coffee and donuts after church, or fellowship might be spending an hour and a half together on a Wednesday night in a small group. That is woefully short of the picture of fellowship here. Not that that's not part of it, but what's being reflected to us in the portrait of the church community we see here is they're not just sharing a snack or sharing a few minutes together on a Wednesday night. It says they shared all things in common. So this passage is showing us that both spiritual and material realities are no longer just our own private purview. They're not just ours to hold on to. And it's not because the church came in and said, now you owe it, you give, everybody, give us your stuff, we'll take care of it. It says they each did this as they saw the other people around them having need. This, wasn't a, this isn't communism. They have things in common, but it's not communism. It's not commanded. It's not that they were dictated to do this. But because they were devoted to Christ now, because they really had hope in being part of a better community, that hope actually started to display itself in their community. This is what's so different and attractive is what's meant to be attractive about this community. They're diverse, 
They're rich, they're poor, they're black and white, they're Jew and Gentile, they're educated and uneducated, they're men and women, yet they were all together committed fully to the common good of one another, even at cost to themselves. What is that? We might just say that so far, if we could sum up everything we've said, the different thing about this community is that they are radically unselfish. They love God and they love one another first. And the great miracle that's occurring among them is to actually see a human community that isn't rooted in self. That's the main thing that's gone wrong with the world. We may think that the problems are out there, and if those people just shaped up, it would all go better. But the Bible tells us repeatedly that the main thing we need is we have to become those people in order for the world to become better. We live in a weird time. In some ways, it's a paradox. We want to make a difference. We want to fight social injustices, but we don't want it to cost us anything personally. We want to legislate it. We want to make laws and policies to help those things happen. We want all people to be, have adequate health care or be treated with dignity. Do you know that these are actually Christian ideas? This was not how the Roman Empire operated. It was based on strength and power, and this people was based on equality and dignity. This new community. These ideas make sense to you and I, because of Christianity, except that now we often try to disconnect them from God. We want Christian ideas or Christian values apart from the Christian God. But this was distinctively attractive back in this new community because of the unselfish nature of the community God was creating. So, Here's something that the Apostle James would later write in James chapter 2. He said, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have any work to back it up? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, but without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't display itself in action, is dead. This new kind of community was so centered on loving one another that when they became aware of someone's need, they filled the need. They looked for the needs. They sought out the needs among them. And this is the foundation, another foundation of what made this different kind of community. Essentially, it's an entirely new form of friendship. It's an entirely new form of, fa of family that lives out what family and friendship were always intended to be. There's so much self-giving by everyone that if you would never actually feel any lack because if you needed something, someone else would help you. And if they needed something, you would help them. It's that kind of community. It's diverse, but it's united, not simply around respecting one another, but going deeper. They're united in Christ. And this is how we become a different kind of church community today. The last thing it says is that they were self-giving, essentially, but exceedingly glad. Verse 46 and 47, day by day they attended the temple, so they went to church together. They broke bread in their homes, so they had hospitality. They received everything, their food and everything else, with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in public they worshiped. 
private they worshiped, in church, in their homes, in the public square, on campus, across their city. They were doing the same things everywhere they went. They took communion, they read and they learned scripture. They prayed for God's purposes to be done among them. And knowing God and being together, they did everything, it says, with glad and generous hearts. How does that work? How do we get to become radically unselfish? How do we get to this place where, would you say that's a description of our church? If we were to paint a portrait of Campus House or other churches you've been a a part of, is that the way you individually as a believer would describe your life? I have a glad and generous heart. How do we become attractively different to people around us if what we're known for is what we stand against? When what these people stand for was glad and gen- was so joyful and so generous. I imagine that some of you have seen or been a part of some ugly church splits. You've seen people fighting in the church, not loving one another. And at the very, at the very least, it's likely if you've been a part of a church for a while, there may be several people in, in your church Um, who annoy you a little bit. I might be one of those people. Maybe I annoy you. And maybe there's people in your church that you would never have chosen to be friends with. And yet here we are in this new kind of community that calls us to be the greatest depth of friendship and family you've ever known or seen. You might not have chosen it. You might not like it. But the whole difference, the whole thing that brings it all together is not just that they are a community striving for diversity and unity or striving to become better people or striving to do some philanthropy. The whole thing that brought them together is that they were devoted to God and Christ himself. That's the only thing that will make a difference. If we went back, and I'll summarize it rather than read it, and we look at the sermon that Peter preached, what is going on as they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, it told us in verse 42. What was the apostles' teaching? What did Peter just say that so convinced and persuaded them and the Spirit so applied to their hearts that they actually became this radically unselfish new kind of community? What did Peter say? He showed them that Jesus devoted himself to us. Jesus devoted himself to our salvation. He set himself apart. He gave himself away. The idea of radical unselfishness is so compelling because God did it for us. It's not just that we go do it for God. Philippians 2 said that Jesus emptied himself of his glory so that we might become glorious. We might join in the beauty of God. He gave up the comfort of heaven in order to suffer and die on earth so that we would be no longer separated from God. He was rejected by everyone, including the Father on the cross, so that we would be accepted. The unselfish one took the punishment of the selfish. Those who were living their lives for themselves, he went and lived his life for in order to do us good. No religion, no other philosophy before or since Christianity, has ever said that God will give himself away for you. And this is the center of reality. The heart of ultimate reality is giving yourself away to others. 
because God did this for you. He, the strongest in the universe, became weak. He, the one who is immortal, became mortal. He, who could not die, died for sin. This changes everything, friends. When people understand this for the first time, seeing that God gave himself away for us, seeing that the center of reality isn't about holding on to your wealth, your power, your status, your glory, yourself, but it's about giving it all away. The people, it says in Acts 2.37, were cut to the heart. That picture changed their lives. And the picture wasn't of them being awesome. It was of Jesus being incredible. His willingness to devote himself to them is what caused them to devote themselves to the word, to prayer, to being together in a very unique new kind of way, to fellowshipping, to breaking bread. This is the kind of love that God has for us. So their old patterns of selfishness could be undone because even death can be undone. So, so can the rest of our lives. Where we have lived for ourselves, we start to live for others. That's the change that occurs. And it can happen even now because God comes still to give us the very same hope. They became glad and generous because God is glad and generous to serve us, and to give himself away for us. To the extent that this becomes your story, to the extent that this becomes your pattern for understanding who you are and what you are, to the extent that you see that this is who God is and what God does, to the extent that this becomes the pattern of your life is the extent to which we all together collectively will work as a loving community We will become attractively different, a new kind of human community on the campus. We will become like Jesus himself.